You're listening to Girls Gone Canon, covering his dark materials. Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, his dark materials, episode 5, Northern Lights, the Golden Compass, chapters 13 to 15. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You might know me from the internet as Lies and Arbor on Twitter, Tumblr, and liesandarborgold.com. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. You might know me as Glass Table Girl on Reddit, or maybe as Arithmetric on Twitter. Hello, everyone. So as we don't need to give you the spiel anymore, you're here. It's episode five. You know what we're doing. All right. It's His Dark Materials. We know what we're doing now-ish. I think. Debatable. <laughs> Debatable. Every week it's different. This is so different. Uh, if you followed us before, our podcast before, it was A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones based. Now we have added a new series. I'm excited because I'm really dedicated to it. And also, Eliana promised me we could do another series at one point too. So I'm like, we could just do books forever. I love books. Uh, I was talking to my landlord and I'm about to move out of this place, but he's going to start a book club rereading some books that we've already read. Uh, they're the three body problem books or remembrance of Earth's past, depending on what you feel like calling it. Three body problem, in my opinion, is more catchy. So whatever. And yeah, I was like, yeah, for sure. I definitely want to come to those because if there's anything else that I need, it's to reread more books that I already do. <laughs> yeah. Just I feel like pilot. consuming books is so important. I'm glad that's like our key solidarity right there. Read books. Read them Just all. read them again Even and again bad. and again. Even if they're bad, at least you don't have to do it again. That's you know? true. Just... I, something that I learned at some point is that if you don't like a book or anything, you can stop. <laughs> yeah, you really can. You can. It's a, a great thing. I, I miss book fairs and stuff like that. I remember that as a kid. That was like my favorite thing. The library. I love the library. I still yeah. do. Yeah. Someone tweeted recently. They're like, it's October and outside it smells like the first Tuesday of the Scholastic Book Fair. And I was like, whoa. Whoa. What a throwback. Yeah. It kind of does. So. And did I ever tell you about the time I bought a book? About yes. skateboarding to impress Let's that guy. Wasn't that in our podcast? Let's rehash that. What? When did we talk I don't about know. that? Was that a song of ice and fire? Well, it obviously had to have been know. a song of ice and fire. When was that? If you remember, let us know. I think I it was a remember. Sansa chapter. Same. Hard same Sansa. <laughs> but we are reading the His Dark Materials series, and today we are going to cover three chapters from part two, Bullvanger. Chapters 13, 14, and 15. Chapter 13, Fencing. 14, Bullvanger Lights. And 15, The Demon Cages. After that, we will have a discussion. It's our book spoilers after section. So tune out if you don't want to know what happens after the Golden Compass slash Northern Lights. And after that, usually is a dustier discussion. However, I think Eliana and I are almost head and head. Yeah, there's nothing that much dustier. I think some of our yeah. listeners are actually ahead of us in terms of material that they've consumed. Yeah, dark material. Oh, consumed. wow. Uh, I know Warren, our friend Warren is ahead. I know a couple other people that have already probably finished The Secret Commonwealth. God so um, we need to get our crap together. Well, it's secret to me now. 
Of course, we are trying to finish this by November 4th when the series premieres in the U.S. for BBC HBO. His Dark Materials. We're very excited about that. We have a very special Patreon episode coming up for all of our $5 and up patrons. We do have a episode based solely around His Dark Materials. Everything you need to know about the upcoming His Dark Materials series. Uh, we're going to also talk about everything you need to know about the Golden Compass and what the hell happened. The movie. When it came out. The movie. The hit yes, award winning uh, movie. I think it did win a Razzie. Let me check. I hope to know this information. Yeah. It wasn't wasn't a well-adored movie by fans, by canon fans. And as we are canon fans, Eliana has not seen it. It's going to be the ep- opposite of our read-through. Eliana's the one that's going to be new to seeing The Golden Compass. And it's, uh, it's going to be good because I'm going to see her live in the flesh. Watch it. So it did not win a Razzie, but it did win a yoga award for worst foreign actress and worst foreign film and both nicole kidman oh. and chris white's won. not the best received movie but i think it does hold merit uh we're gonna reveal some secrets if you guys listen to we had a patreon episode patrons for winter is coming the first episode of game of thrones and we did that with manu from a scene of ice and fire a nuclear bomb on Twitter, and we're going to do something similar with this. We're going to be covering the first foray into his dark materials, the Golden Compass. And everything got cancelled, but now it's coming back. It's been resuscitated as a television show. Just when you thought it was leaving the world, like, matter. It actually seems to happen a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Chloe's making faces at me. She's trying to she's trying to tell me things, but I'm not going to spoil all of you. We're not in the discussion yet. Anyway, so <laughs> yeah, that seems to be like what happens with a lot of things. For example, it sounds like the Avatar: The Last Airbender movie, which there is no movie in Bossing Say, is being in that tanked, and now they're trying to make a live action version. I think on Netflix as a television show. So you know, it's the future. Mm. Everything is a chance at new life now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm glad that even though New Line kept the rights to this series, which we will continue on the path and talk about in this Patreon episode coming out towards the mid-end of the month, we will uncover some of this. And I think His Dark Materials as a series really has a lot to offer. I think it will do well. I think now it has the right people attending it and maybe the right audience for it. I think at the time we just weren't ready for that media shock of, all this crazy Satanist oh my book God. we've been reading. It's obviously Satanism, right? Yeah, it is, pretty much. It's so it bad. Really is. Along with our Patreon episode, though, we have some other exciting His Dark Materials ex-Girl Gone Canon news. Oh, wait. XOXO. XOXO. Gossip Girl Gone Canon? Yes. We, we could do that book series. I would totally do I haven't read the that. books. I'm just putting that out there. I've read two. Uh, I need to read the books. I liked the show. I was in I need middle to, like, school. Actually, finish the show one day. But anyways, so we have a special guest, everyone. Yes, tell him I'm so excited. It is our very first guest to join us for his dark materials. To to put it all up, we talked about this person a few episodes ago. We were very excited to have our friend shoot us an email and show us some of her artwork about his dark materials everyone everyone tana ford from westeros Wheneverly, aka Wheneverly, 
is going to be joining us. And you might actually know some of her art if you're a Marvel fan. She designed Cindy Moon mm-hmm. for a couple different issues. Uh, of Silk. Silk. Yep. yep, Silk and Amazing. It first appeared The Amazing Spider-Man, number one. The designs she's done are just amazing. So check it out online. So we are super excited to have Tana on for this. We are big fans of her. And um, she definitely thinks that I drink poor beers, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to step up I'm gonna have to step up my beer game when she comes on the cast apparently yeah. apparently, yeah Tana did some really cool art of Tony Macarios's, uh fish fish house mm-hmm. and we're gonna talk more about that fish house again today ooh maybe we should ask her to make us a cocktail as they do on Whineverly for, for this episode that would be really awesome Yes, the Westeros Whateverly Way. Mm-hmm. We will have to ask Tana for a cocktail choice. We'll hit her a message. Yep. Well, no emails or tweets a note today to chat about. We will have some probably next week, it looks like. But for now, let's jump into chapter 13. Fencing. Lyra wants to run or puke or something upon seeing this awful, awful sight. As you'll all remember, it is a human with no demon, which is unnatural the poor boy in front of her cries for ratter his demon and she asks his name it's tony makarios you'll all remember him from from the earlier episode he was the one the first boy that we saw taken by mrs coulter lyra swallows to stop her nausea and goes outside to sit in the snow together with pan oh to be cut from him as this little boy had been parted from his ratter when I was first reading this chapter, do you remember? Well, not even this one, like all of it. Yeah. Every single little bit of thing like this. I was just like, Eliana, no. Is this going to happen to Pan and Lyra? Please don't say something bad's going to happen to Pan and Lyra. My heart couldn't take it. Bad things happen to Pan and Lyra. Bad things, but no spoilers. Just know in your heart, it gets better. Well, maybe not better. It gets worse, but I mean, things things are okay. They're all right. You'll be fine. You'll live. You'll live through this series. I have a friend that's listening to us and reading through the series for the first time and she was texting me today and she's like what are you doing to me this is awful oh, i'm yeah. like i know uh, and like eliana said it was gonna be bad and you guys i believed her but like then it was worse it made my heart break 800 times it was the best book ever best best so good this series. and to think this was a formative experience uh, for me i know oh that says so much know, about right? you wow I know, I just keep saying, like, I want to reread Amber Spyglass. I want to reread it, but we'll get there. You know, I thought Ratter has so much. There's so much to talk about Ratter. Mm-hmm. There really in is. In this chapter. This is a Ratter chapter. First of all, Ratter is not, this is not a laughing matter, but Ratter isn't really a rat very often. No. Doesn't change much, and we'll learn yeah. that soon, but... You know, there's a lot of that representation of souls we've been talking about in Demons, and I feel like this chapter and the following chapters really do a lot to remind me of Plato and Socrates versus Aristotle on souls. In Phaedo, Plato aligns with Socrates on thinking that nothing could actually affect the body that could affect the soul, right? Like death, age, and sickness wouldn't affect the soul in his mind. But Aristotle seems to think almost more like Pullman in that the soul can't be separate from the body unless humans 
die. It, it exists only in a specific person at a specific time and in a specific place. And in a way, I feel like it almost represents the two forces of like the order and the, the magisterium and company versus humanity, right? Like Plato despises the body and thinks separation of body and soul is optimal, but Aristotle thinks that the soul is the life force, right? Like that is what makes us who we are. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of both going on here. And I think, um, you know, in terms of the mind and body dualism, it's really interesting because in these series, the soul, rather than necessarily being as it is in the real world, this ephemeral idea that people philosophize about, it's tangible, right? So you can have... So the discussions about it are very different. But I think that... And I guess that's why they're doing these experiments. Yeah, to figure <laughs> yeah. it out. These are like actual now that I think experiments. About it. But yeah, and we can talk about that because that happens in this episode and therefore isn't a spoiler. No, you all have to have read this by now. And if you haven't, I'm very... What are you doing? You already know <laughs> you, we're yeah. loose cannons. We're loose well, girls you know gone we're cannons. We're on chapters Wait. 13 through 15. You know where we're at. You yeah, know us. We literally put it up top. I can't be held responsible. Anyway. Especially not for my own actions. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, I think there's a little bit of both going on because it sounds like Aristotle thinks that the soul also dies when the living organism dies, but it's, 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 it's up in the air. It's debatable. Yeah. Here, I, uh... We'll come back to that. We'll come back to the definitions of death. In a yeah, later episode. I mean, what is death? I yeah. mean, it's a little of both. Yeah, that's why I guess, yeah, it is a little of both. It's a little of both. I could see both sides at play. And I think it's interesting you mentioned the research portion of it because we're about to come across a very much so research oriented scenario. Um, we'll see. We'll see. But at first, Pan and Lyra are just whimpering and sobbing. No. They're just sobbing about the boy without his demon. And Lyra finally gets it together and calls for Tony to come out so they can get him somewhere to safety. I'm really appreciating in this. It's kind of like my second read through now, I guess, of this. It literally series. is your so second read through of this series. It's literally wow. At this point, I, I've lapped myself, but I'm appreciating the intimacy right now between Pan and Lyra. Like every single chapter in my HDM life here, because once you appreciate that intimacy and see it as a whole picture, especially like how the souls and people operate, it's. It's very intense. I cry a lot more now. Yeah. There's that and also I appreciate there's so much that I appreciate about Lyra. Like yeah. She goes outside to sob and you know, she has to take that time to collect her feelings, but she doesn't do it in front of Tony. She doesn't make this this lonely cold boy responsible for her feelings and for seeing her pity for him, right? She goes, she handles it and manages her feelings on her own. And then she comes back and she takes care of Tony. In the fish house. And Tony comes to the door with his dead fish in hand. And the fisherman with the lantern calls to them. With Yorick saying, yo, this guy wants to you to pay for the fish. And Lyra's like, fuck that. <laughs> fuck that. We're taking this boy away from him. That's payment enough. And the man's like, you right. <laughs> yeah, he wants... That's the thing. Is like this, this, He's just been staying there, right? He's been... Crowded for cover, huddled up, just staying there. And I think that's uh, it's very sad. It's very no one's sad. bothered to do anything. 
It's also messed up because it's an ice house, so it's like preserving him. Oh too. yeah, that's true. There's a lot of there's a lot of yeah. weird things going on with like this ice house and the fish. There's a a thought that I had earlier while rereading. Maybe it's out there and too deep, but the idea, you know, another perversion of like the fishers of men, as they call as they call people who who sorry, I'm trying to come up with words. Fishers of men, uh, that idea of spreading the gospel, right? And that's what I don't know, that that's an undertone. Not gonna touch on it too deeply. Yeah. I have a similar thought. We'll come back to it in just a little bit, because I do have a similar thought. So Lyra helps poor little Tony Macarios, Mount Yorick, and all he can do the whole time is say that he doesn't know where Radder is. Lyra gives a speech about punishing the gobblers, if they can, for what, what they've been doing. That reminds me a lot of John Fah's speech in Chapter 8, Frustration, that we read just a while ago. Um, he says... When the time comes to punish, we shall strike such a blow as'll make their hearts faint and fearful. We shall strike the strength out of them. We shall leave them ruined and wasted, broken and shattered, torn in a thousand pieces and scattered to the four winds. Don't you worry that John Fa's heart is too soft to strike a blow when the time comes, and the time will come under judgment, not under passion. It just makes me think of Lyra really embodying those leaders that she's getting, right? These paternal and maternal figures that are kind of showing up into her life again yeah <sighs> she learns so much from all of them i don't know if she we can yeah. say she really punishes anyone though no she doesn't i think what i really love about this series so far is just how it it zooms in on lyra mm -hmm. right and her actions and the ripple effect that her actions have on all these people and their people right the people they come from um, the lands they live on and Lyra either protecting or in some cases being detrimental to those people's causes, right? The antagonist of the story for Lyra. It's weird because the POVs aren't like in A Song of Ice and Fire, which we've read where it's each person's thoughts and actions consistently. We get just kind of this pan view, haha, hmm. this panel Amon view of, of just everyone around her and what Lyra really has brought as a cause. It's, yeah, it's all for her, for this little girl. All these people are so, you know, we have to help her. We're helping Lyra. Excuse me? That was a spoiler for my heart. <laughs> but for now, Lyra can feel pain and want to reach out and cuddle the child. But the great taboo stops him from doing so. They ride through the village, seeing the horror on the villagers' faces and relief as well. As they take the child away. And even though Lyra also feels revolted she keeps her arms around tony and from time to time tony speaks asking if radder's gonna know where he is uh, it's like the worst and lyra is just like uh not to agree with her like you know obviously we know tony's been in awful conditions and yes it's gross because no demon and that's a big taboo and culturally it's just like weird for anyone that has a demon in her world but just my arms to keep him safe, and we're gonna get him there, and things will get better. Yeah, I just love the line that they have and how they physicalize this. Like, in Lyra's heart, revulsion struggled with compassion, and compassion won. And I mm. think that you know, we've been talking about who Lyra is and, and the, her values this episode so far, and in a couple of previous episodes, and I think that this is absolutely just so indicative of who she is. That compassion yeah. wins. <sighs> it's It's... Yeah, and that's 
that's kind of every choice she makes, right? Like, even when she's lying and she might not be telling the whole truth, or even when she's doing questionable things, the reason she's doing it is usually very good-hearted and strong-hearted. Um... For good reasons, to protect people and to help people. Except for when she's at Jordan College wreaking havoc. <laughs> yeah, and that's just being a yeah, kid, though. Exactly. That's <laughs> she's just doing nonsense. She's just being a kid, dude. But no, it, it is, though. <laughs> it's a bummer, because they're just trying to do their damn jobs. They love her. They uh, love her for it. They do. Somehow. Well, yeah, and we, we'll, we'll see that, too. They all do. But, yeah, it's... It's hard because it's very indicative of Lyra's character, and it's worse because she's a kid, and she shouldn't be doing this, or having to do this. Yeah, we have a lot of characters throughout the story saying that, wow, shit, okay, so it's all on her shoulders. They're like, she's so young. The master thinks that, you know, the story. Lyra soothes him with the answers that he wants to hear. Uh... Tony is very upset, so she has to calm him and tells him that, yes, we'll find Radder. They make their way back to the camp. Barter Coram, Lord Fa, and Lee Scoresby all leap forward to help them, but silently fall back at the other child with her. Fa asks what child she's found, and she tells him he's called Tony and that his demon has been cut away. The men stay back fearful, and Eoric shames them. Again, another, uh, kind of another callback to chapter 8 with frustration when John Fa was shaming hmm. Raymond, but here Eorg is shaming the men. Uh, shame on you! Think what this child has done. You might not have more courage, but you should be ashamed to show less. They get it, dude. John Fa, Eorg, they get it. Yeah, they do. They see eye to eye. There's a lot of people who are similar to one another in the series. But not in a bad way. Like, they're all clearly different people or bears. (laughs) So, John Fa agrees with Eorg, and he commands that fires be lit and soup be made for the children. Lyra tries to tell John Fa about the witches and what she learned, but she's tired and she falls asleep temporarily. Lyra sleeps a lot. In these few chapters, she's a very busy baby girl. Me too, dude. (laughs) Me too. I feel you, Lyra. Very busy baby girl. V-tired. Hand awakens her, and Eoric is there. He wants to chat. She thanks him for helping in the journey and asks him to tell John Fa about the witches. She falls asleep and wakes to a misty, pale sky, and the Egyptians are packing up their sledges and dogs. She's asleep in a heap of furs from Fardercorum's sledge, and Pan runs around as an arctic fox before reverting to his airmine form. So I'm sure that many of you actually already know this, but one of Pan's, as you know, favorite forms is an ermine, and the reason for it is kind of meta. Part of Philip Pullman's inspiration for the demons and and the story was actually a Da Vinci painting, Lady with an Ermine. It's pretty straightforward if you take a look at it, in that it is a lady with an ermine. So Eoric is asleep nearby. And Coram's busy. He limps and he wakes Lyra. Lyra tries to tell him what she missed on the alethiometer about Tony and his demon. But he interrupts her and he gives a very sad, Maester Eamon-esque speech. Lyra, I'm afraid to tell you this after what you've done. 
but that little boy died an hour ago. He couldn't settle. He couldn't stay in one place. He kept asking after his demon, where she was, was she a-coming soon, and all, and he kept such a tight hold on that barreled piece of fish as if, oh, I can't speak of it, child, but he closed his eyes finally and fell still, and that was the first time he looked peaceful. For he was like any other dead person then, with their demon gone in the course of nature. They've been a-trying to dig a grave for him, but the earth's bound like iron. So John Fa ordered a fire built, and they're going to cremate him so as to not have him despoiled by carrion eaters. Child, you did a brave thing and a good thing, and I'm proud of you. Now we know what terrible wickedness these people are capable of. We can see our duty, plainer than ever. What you must do is rest and eat, because you fell asleep too soon to restore yourself last night, and you have to eat in these temperatures to stop yourself getting weak. I love Chloe's grandpa voice. Barterchlorum? It It is! You have such a good grandpa voice. Thanks, I wanted to add like a tiny touch of self, but then I was wary of a character we're going to introduce more and more of mm. Lee. And I'm like, what about my southern twang yeah, if I have to I go noticed. too heavy? I noticed. You know, I was like, I want it to be a slight little southern twang, but a little ancient, but not too ancient. Yep. You know, not Maester Eamon. Dial it back mm-hmm. like a couple decades. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. thank you, thank you. He's he's still strong. He like goes on this boat journey, you know, and he's totally fine. Oh, I mean, compared to Mister Amon, mm-hmm. yeah, and no rum barrel. That's true. So Lyra, after all of this, then asks to see Tony's body, and Fartacorum's like seems right, and she and Pan, who is in this moment a white hair. Bound over to where the men are piling brushwood, she closes Tony's eyes and sweeps Pan into a hug, thinking of how devastating it would be to be apart from him. And she remembers that all Tony had was a piece of dead fish from the fish house in place of a demon. And then she realizes, where is it? Where's the fish? Oh my god, her emotion here is yes. really intense. I love this little passage like couple of passages because it's just again indicative of lyra's character and pullman does an amazing job writing some of these characters they get real into your heart um i do want to establish that since i pointed out i guess uh pan turns into a white hair here as they go over there and i thought it was interesting because obviously anytime pullman says that the demon is white you want to think of more purity right Mm -hmm. You want to go pure, virgin, yada yada. We get it. Pure, the savior, whatever. I don't know. But we want to go pure. And a white hair is totally a, a very big purity symbol. So I thought that was really interesting because Lyra is going over there with the most pure intentions. And her heart is obviously, and her soul is, she's just pure. She's, we know she's innocent. Her innocence as a child is what kind of like gets her out of a lot of shit. <laughs> obviously that's what children are like um they get out of a lot of shit by their innocence and purity and their their young age but another interesting thing is this whole fish house thing um ice was this huge import in kind of the early 1920s from scandinavia into the uk factories eventually started cropping up so they didn't have to worry about it and they still exist in the uk um they're usually too far gone broken down debilitated to use or fix but 
Uh, the fish house we find Tony in is probably a mix of something we in the U.S. would look at as like a shanty or ice shack. Hmm. Something on the ice, something on the water, but mixed with what was introduced to Britain in like late 1600s, usually domed brick-lined structures with a drain and kind of some insulation so they could keep food and ice in there. Game larders also marked on surveys for many, many years ice houses, and Scotland has like long, ruined, decrepit ice houses that have tunnels underneath, which is really interesting. I thought that was very interesting. I was like, oh, tunnels. I want to know where they go. And to follow up on that dead fish symbolism in general that we were kind of chatting about the fish earlier and that whole, you know... Fishers of men. Yes, fishers of men situation. It almost makes me think about that very basic Christianity fish symbolism. It goes back kind of farther even than its first record. The first written record was the Clement of Alexandria from 150 who implemented wax seals with fish or dove to mark people as believers. So if they were sending a letter... Were they seals or were they fish or doves? I'm about to get fired. (sighs) You've been fired. So wax seals, Eliana, with fish or dove imprinted on the seal, which is a wax seal, not an animal seal. They're on seals. (sighs) But it would mark people as believers when they sent mail. So even if you were sending an innocent letter... You could probably use some diplomacy to see if you were on the same side, etc. Because, you know, there's war and shit, I guess, whatever. But there's also even older Roman monuments like Capella Gresa, erected in the first decades of the second century that use fish as symbols in Christianity as well. And here we are with Tony holding a dead fish. It's like a twisted, abandoned child believer of God thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's been forgotten by this god whoever this god is overseeing this story if we ever meet him he has abandoned this child after he has been cut he is worthless his his soul his creature has been cut from him and he is worthless in this plan for god now and i'm gonna just come back to a comment about that later on in this episode (sighs) but yeah i think that's absolutely that's absolutely like nail on the head i was i was hoping that because i was like am i just reaching too deep because all this religious symbolism it's like of all things, this kid comes across. It's a dead fish yeah. that chooses his. I'm like a half zombie kid demon. I think that's definitely, for me, it feels intentional. And even if it's not, you know, it, it's a known, in my opinion, a symbol, especially within Christianity. So, yeah. I mean, you see a fish, you know what it's from. The water. It's on a license plate. It's on a bumper yeah. sticker. Lyra is furious and no one responds to her when she asks where the fish is and one of the men begins to grin sheepishly and she says don't you dare laugh i'll tear your lungs out if you laugh at him that's all he had to cling on to just an old dried fish that's all he had for a demon to love and be kind to who's took it from him where's it gone i'm like afraid i'm looking down at my shoes right now as i imagine those men are yeah i mean she's damn not the first time she has shamed them in recent times. <laughs> yeah, and in recent times, in the past 24 in the hours. the past, like, um, 10 minutes. I love, like, even when she showed up to the Egyptians, she was, like, ferocious and annoying. <laughs> uh, she reminds me, I think everyone can find a little bit of themselves in Lyra, right, as a youngster. Yeah. Like, you don't have to be super brave or super this or super that. Like, everyone has a little Lyra in them somewhere. And just that whole, like, nope. 
shamelessly like i am lyra shamelessly i love that i love that about her. yes uh but what's really crazy about this is pan then turns into a snarling snow leopard just like stelmaria her father's demon asriel but she then thinks she didn't see that all she saw was right and wrong wow that was an asrealism yes that's interesting uh maybe that sentence is a little bit closer to home than she knows right like you could replace Azriel in that, probably, pretty easily. All he saw was right and wrong. And greed, but that's neither here nor there. Maybe later. Yeah, maybe. I He's definitely ambitious. He's definitely a Slytherin. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's weird, because I really thought that Lin-Manuel was playing him originally. I was oh, very confused, just because of the way the articles were. I was like, he's Azriel. I would love to see that. I just think the range is crazy. Like, that would be nuts. <laughs> I do like the the moment in the recent trailer where, so as you all know, everyone, another trailer came out for His Dark Materials, and they have Lin-Manuel as Lee Scoresby hopping up on something going, has anyone seen a bear? I'm like, love it. You're out there in the audience like, we're I'm like, yes! It's me. No. (laughs) I'm right Uh, here! (laughs) uh, And just as I come forward as the bear, so too does this man who says that he was sorry. He... He has a pretty innocent reason. He thought the boy had been eating it, and he took it out of the boy's hand because he felt it would be more respectful so that the dad's not going like off with this half-eaten meal. And then he just gave the fish to his dogs. And so, like, that sounds good to us. We're like, oh, we get it. But, like, sounds probably pretty bad to Lyra. How does she take that? Yeah. I mean, she doesn't take it absolutely terribly, right? She understands now right. that they're... She understands it's not just right and wrong in this moment. She's like, I guess that was innocent enough. He apologizes, but Lyra does clarify that it's not me you need to apologize to. And then she borrows a knife from the man who I, I'm sure was hesitant to give it to her at first when she's like, give me your knife. And I'd <laughs> be like, uh. And then she takes a gold coin from her pocket and scratches the demon's name, Ratter and slips the coin into Tony's mouth so that he can go off into his afterlife like a Jordan scholar. This speaks just volumes about her character. Yes. Again, indicative. That's the word of the day. Yep. Uh, we're going to talk about the scholars again, actually, in chapter 15. There's a little bit of a nod there, but stay tuned on that. Um, it, it, good for you, Lyra. <laughs> What's this chapter? Good for you, Lyra. She heads back to Farger Corum. Who gives her soup and they talk about witches. She wonders to him if one of the witches flying for the wrong team that they saw overhead has been quote unquote his witch. Lyra, it's rude to gossip. <laughs> Leave Farter Coram alone. He is an old man and he has had a very long life. It's been a yeah, day. he has. Maybe he just wanted some closure with his summer fling. Yeah. That resulted in stuff. Like a legacy or heirs or so he says that he wouldn't presume that far he's like don't meddle where you shouldn't be meddling kid is basically what he's thinking he's like please leave my horrible bachelor life alone uh but he's like they can go wherever they want they're witches and then he mentions how witches live a different life than they do and we're gonna learn a lot about this next week with tana during uh the witches episode but illnesses wars they're all different for witches right they're battling a lot of different stuff it reminds me of endgame the Avengers, if you haven't seen it, spoiler alert, but Captain Marvel is like, there are other planets, dude. 
Earth isn't it. Like, there are other places that are suffering, and there's not a lot of us that are saving it. So sometimes you got to be where you got to be. And that's pretty much the witch in question here, in my opinion. But uh, Fardacorum wishes he had seen them flying off. And he tells her, you better eat up before we get ready to go. She watches them lay Tony to rest. She closes her eyes during the prayer, and later she watches them burn him. They set off to travel, and the journey is snowy and cold and empty. And on this journey, along with them, there are snow doggos. Someone call up Cuba Gooding Jr., because we are out here. We have snow dogs. And that's actually the movie we're going to watch for our Patreon episode. You know... There's a song from Snow Dogs, and I'm going to say the song name in a second. Oh. You're going to be like, I barely remember it. Do you remember Hoku? No, I thought- The song Another Dumb Blonde. It was in Snow Dogs, if I recall. I don't remember the song. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was on the soundtrack, and I remember it like it was yesterday. Wow. So I can sing it to you, I'm not uh, going to. Okay. Wow, what a tease. You want me to? I could. It's like- that's all right. That's okay. You didn't love me anyway. I do know the song. And I think it's time for you to find another dumb blonde. I think I do remember this song. Yeah. This sounds familiar. I had it on Hit Clips. Oh my god. Yeah, I said it. Hit Clips. So, sliding past Cuba Gooding Jr. on the ice here. They stop to rest, and John Fa and Lee Scoresby discuss balloon travel. Lyra asks Fardercorum, what happened to the spy fly? That- I like that they're calling it spy fly now. I do too, and I like that there's like a little dash. It's cute. Uh, he soldered it super tightly, and it's in the bottom of his kit bag, which has some just some helpful supplies. And Fardercorum speaks to the other leaders, and she takes that time to take the tin to Eoric and explain her idea to him. She remembers that Eoric could slice through metal of the engine cover beforehand, and she's like, can you please do something with this? And he folds the tin into a flat cylinder with his weirdly opposable thumbs. Those exist, apparently. He has opposable thumbs. He's not like other bears. Well, he's like the other bears that are like him. Yeah, 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 that's true. He He's still not like them, <laughs> though. But he scores the tin for folding so that it stays taut, and he turns it into a case for the alethiometer, And then he makes a second case that's filled with grass and dirt. And he puts the spy fly in there so it softens the buzz and solders it together. She sits with him after and asks him if he gets lonely without a demon. And he's like, I'm a bear. I don't really know what lonely is. It doesn't really bug me. And she's she was so concerned the spy fly would bring Coulter to them. She had him do all this. Like she hid it on her person and kept the spy fly with her. She literally took it out of the kit bag, had Eoric score this tin and put it all together for her and make two separate tins, one that's a fake so she can put it back in the kit bag and scored the alethiometer with the spy fly just so she can keep it close to her, keep everyone safe and keep Coulter away from them. That's that's some courage. That's our girl. That's my daughter, yeah. dude. I birthed yep. her. Move over, Mrs. Coulter. Taught her everything she knew. Yeah, sorry, Marisa. We're the Jordan Scholars now. The Scholars Sisters. Oh, that's a Hamilton reference. Anyways. I'm sorry. I still don't get it. Be fine. Be fine. <gasps> Lyra asks Yorick about the Svalbard bears. 
that there are thousands of them, and she's like, don't you want to go there? And he ignores the question, but then she admits that she's asking because she's interested in what's happened to her father, who is captured and held there. And Yorick's like, uh, I can't really help you. I am a Svalbard bear. But now I'm not, because I killed another bear and have a dark, brooding backstory. Uh, Sandbard? <laughs> Sandjorik? They took his rank and armor and they made him live at the edge of the world and he tells her I was out of control. And Lyra says, but they treated you like you're treating my father. You know, he was wealthy and high ranking and killed someone. So they also took all his wealth away. He's the beast. This is what he's done. These are his horrible crimes. Uh, And we know Pullman actually likes a lot of fairy tales. He's talked about it often. He had an interview in The Guardian where he talks about how the modern novel envelopes a lot of the qualities of a fairy tale, but he says a fairy tale isn't a text in the literary sense. It's not made out of words that are carefully chosen, so no other word would do. It's made out of events. Hmm. And he said that the sense of justice that tends to drive the story, children have a profound and unshakable belief things have to be fair. We see this in characters like Lyra from His Dark Materials, in Arya in A Song of Ice and Fire, uh, These children like stories in which the good people are rewarded and the bad are punished. And we see that in Eoric and Lyra, especially in their relationship and how she regards him and his armor and his soul that he's lost. And it reminds me of a couple of different fairy tales I'm sure Pullman might be Pullmaning from in these books. I think he might be pulling from the Snow Queen a lot. And we're going to talk about that at length, but also East of the Sun, West of the Moon. It has bears in it, and it has this kind of Beauty of the Beast kind of story and journeys to the cold north. Snow Queen's definitely much closer suited to Lyra's story, and it's actually told in seven parts. It's long. We'll talk about it mostly in the discussion, but I do want to give a short blurb that the Snow Queen is Hans Christian Andersen saying, your spirit dies when you abandon love and stories, and Eorik seems pretty jaded. He's kind of seemed like he's abandoned living amongst his people and his spirit his real armor was taken from him he has nothing kind of to live for lyra tells him the only thing she knows about spellbard where he lived is that it's deep in the north over a frozen sea and yorick comments and is like you couldn't get there from this coast over the sea you'd need a boat or a balloon or the right wind too bad they have neither of those right a what fascinating He eats reindeer and Lyra remembers the witches and she asks about Svalbard again. She listens to stories of glaciers and rocks and seals and narwhals from him. She asks where the new armor he has is from and he answers it was made in Nova Zembla from Sky Metal and he was incomplete without it. She thinks out loud, bears can make their own souls. She asks who the king of Svalbard is. He answers Eofer Rachnison. It's, is it a new name to Lyra though? She suddenly remembers that a scholar spoke of him at Jordan in the retiring room when she listened to Asriel. I just wanted to call out this line because I liked it of how Lyra remembers the Jordan's, the Jordan scholar voices, which is, quote, precise and pedantic and lazily arrogant. Mm-hmm. I'm like, mm-hmm. damn. It was, uh, it was the Palmyrian professor, yes. too. He was a dick. Yeah, he was. I mean, they're all dicks, but... And he was like all, Hansier born. Eofer is vain. He could be flattered. And Lyra retained that. That's all she remembers, though. She can't remember anything else. She loses the rest. And Eofer is like, there's no way your father. Yeah, she did. But 
<laughs> she's like she's always yeah falling. she falls asleep a lot is she okay same i mean is she i don't know we don't know eeyore though is like such a bummer he's like there's no way your father's gonna escape by the by <laughs> he says there's no resources for him to make a boat he'll be treated fairly though they might give him a home to live in with a servant and food and fuel till he dies which is nice, you know, a light to die by. That's nice. It's a, yeah, it's not the worst. It, it probably is for a Slytherin, though, like Asriel. It's like definitely not. Lyra asks, well, could the bears ever be defeated? And he says, no, because they cannot be tricked or defeated. And then he tells her, you've seen my armor. Now look at my weapons. And then he holds out his hand paws. Look at this little bird. <laughs> he does do that. But Lyra's like way more excited. She's like, wow, cool! Because his paws are thick black pads and each claw on it is sharp as a knife and as long as Lyra's hand, at least on oh each. Oh my god, that's huge! She's like, one blow would crush a seal skull or break a man's back just like an egg. And it throws me back to that scene in Wreck-It Ralph. The villains, <laughs> the villains. Oh my god, she is Vanellope. Oh, you're right. There's similarities. And Thank you. and Yorick is Ralph. Yeah. Wow. Anyways. And he's like a hero. He is a hero, just like Ralph. He's gonna wreck it. <laughs> I'm gonna wreck it. Oh my god. <laughs> he, oh. he uh he makes her fence with a stick against him, which is where we get this chapter title, fencing. And she fails. He flicks it aside super easily. You know, he's like, I was in Snow Dogs and I won't stand for this shit. (laughs) Two references, one episode. Two girls, one canon. Trust your heart. Yorick isn't surprised in the least by her fans. Honestly, the way that they describe him in the scene actually sounds adorable and not scary. I know that Lyra (laughs) comes out of it feeling like more afraid of it, but no, he's like sitting on his haunches. And he's like, by being non-human, no one can trick me. I can see deceit and trickery easily, like limbs, in ways that Lara has forgotten. But I do want to say, like, yes, but, you know, it's Lyra practicing this fainting. I just want to say, like, Lyra's not an experienced fighter. And I know I should take this at face value because, yes, as Philip Pullman just said, you know, it's not like all that deep, but also like at the same time, maybe an advanced fighter could do it. Lyra's just a little girl. Yeah. I'm like, maybe someone who's more advanced at fighting could do it. That's true. And Lyra is more advanced in other factions of life, right? Like she's amazing at reading the alethiometer, which other adults really aren't good at. Um, she's different than other adults, Eorc says. He says that he's different than just humans that fight. He's not like other bears either. <laughs> I'm but not adults like can't other bears. Read. Oh my god. Roar. <laughs> adults can't read the alethiometer like she can or fight like he can. Uh, she worries this means she'll forget when she grows up. But Eoric doesn't really know the answer to that. She wants to consult the alethiometer about all of this, but it's too cold and the adults are calling her to come talk to them. So she puts the tins back. The empty one in Barter Coram's kit, and the one that holds both the alethiometer and the spy fly in her pouch. Lee Scoresby is planning to fly up and spy at their next stop in the balloon, and she wants to join him, but they won't allow her. She ends up riding with him on the way there, and 
She's asking him a ton of questions. I love this line also. Naturally, Lyra was eager to fly with him, and naturally, it was forbidden. <laughs> but she rode with him on the way there and bustered him with questions, so she didn't... Anyway, I'm just like, natch. Lyra, no. <laughs> Lyra, yes. That's this moment, I guess. Everything she does is yes. like that. Even when she gets to uh, the facility we're going to talk about, she's like that. You know, she just, it's Lyra. She's like, this is going to work uh, out. It's going to be fun. Well, one of the questions she asks him is, how does one fly to Svalbard? Well, a gas engine, a zeppelin, or a good wind to start, but he would never try. Yeah, Scoresby says that Svalbard's basically the dead end of nowhere, and it's very inhospitable, but let's be real, Lyra's really into places like the dead end of nowhere, so. Yeah, and Lee Scoresby's already been like, I'd die for that girl, so. <laughs> pretty much. It's timely, pretty <laughs> I much. I just like, met They you. all are. Yeah, all of them are like. Literally all of these grown-ass men on this ship, on this journey, are just like, okay. And the Jordan, Jordan College. Yeah. Damn, she important. She, She's uh, beloved. Uh, Lyra lies to Lee Scoresby, and she's like, so I was just curious, if Eorik ever wants to go back to Svalbard, what do you think? And Lee's like, he'd be killed because he's in exile. And she's like, hmm, interesting knowledge. Thanks, Lee Scoresby. <laughs> and she's like, how are the balloons inflated, by the way? And he's like, oh yeah, there's two ways, let me tell you. He's like Arthur Weasley Aww. in this shit. It's cute. He's like, I can make hydrogen by pouring sulfuric acid onto iron fillings, which fill the balloon. Crazy science shit. And he's like, or if I find ground gas in a vent near a fire mine, I can fill it there and I can make gas from rock oil and coal. Nerd. <laughs> he says it takes about an hour to do it and he could carry up to six people. And Larry's like, but what about a bear? And he's like, yeah, I've carried York before when we were in trouble with the Tartars. And I assume that this is what the short story once yep. Upon a Time in the North is about, but I haven't actually read it yet. I have it. Uh, I started it. Yeah, I, it's like really short, I think, 40 pages, but now it's packed in a box because I'm moving. So, yeah. rip. Rip. <laughs> Lyra asks Lee, Lyra asks if Lee knows about the Tartars drilling holes in people, and he tells her, yeah, they've been doing it to each other, like, willingly, all the time, for thousands of years. Some of them even have two holes. They cut partway around a circle of skin and the scalp and lift up a flap, exposing the bone. Then they t cut a tiny bit of bone out and cover it all back up, all just so the gods can talk to them, which actually really surprises Lyra because she thought that this was done to hurt and punish their enemies. I really love that this series is so interwoven, right? This whole world, like, if you haven't finished the books yet, you're definitely in for such a treat when slash if you do. Uh, when it's all said and done, it's so good. It, it, it just is so, so woven together. I love it so much. We're clearly struggling with this whole reread format. <laughs> like, not talking about everything. How does Dava's fingers do it? Yeah. I don't know. They're they're brave men, but we learned a lot from doing this and being like them. And in that we're not like them and we are sucking at this and we're trying so hard. <sighs> yeah newfound respect but just like oh wait shit oh wait shit all the time it's just like i feel like i can't openly discuss yeah. everything on my brain I just feel like there's a lot i can't be myself right now i can't be myself on this podcast anymore <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Anyway, I, I totally agree with you about the way that the story is formatted, which is why, yes, we're having such a hard time. But also in this moment, you know, with the Tartars right now, just as with the Egyptians, we learned that they're not quite what we thought, that a lot of the things about their culture were misportrayed to a lot of the people. And this line and talking about the Tartars and their customs is showing us that, oh, hey, maybe they were also a little misunderstood, or at least their customs were too. It's almost like they've been lied to for so wow. long about other people. Wow. Who would do such a thing? Not the government. Um, so she asks if he knew of someone that we haven't talked about in a minute. Mm. You're going to be like, what? Who? Stanislaus Grumman. I do really like that name. I, it's, it's a fun, fun name. Like um, Cancer Bjorn. So, Cancer Bjorn. Lee Scoresby has heard of Stanislaus Grumman, and he tells her. It's likely that he had that hole drilled into his scalp as well as he went to live with the Tartars. But Lyra insists, no way, he's dead. I saw his head. And Lee tells her maybe Azriel misled them. She says he was asking for money and people gave the money when they saw the head. Lee thinks, oh, that's a good trick. People wouldn't look too closely at something like that. And this moment, I think, ties back to the beginning of this chapter really well. Because Lee says that with something so horrifying and gruesome, people want to get away from it. They don't want to look that closely, right? Which is why they throw their money at Azrael. And I think this chapter makes the argument that Lee is right, because we actually see this happen earlier with men who are less prim and proper than the Jordan scholars. Like, they shied away from Tony Makarios, this repulsive thing, even though Lyra did not. And if you'll remember... Back then in the room. Lyra actually asked to see the head again. And Lord Asriel's like, ha ha ha, no. Hmm. Yeah, because, so if the head was truly Grumman's, it, it wasn't the Tartars who did it. And his whole story is just kind of moot, right? Like, interesting to imply Asriel might be lying about something. He wouldn't do that, right? You mean Lyra, who's really good at lying? You don't think her father would lie? You don't, don't think know. he would just I mean, go Mrs. on the Coulter. internet and tell lies? <laughs> <laughs> they were wide currents, full of meaning, flowing fast around her. Ooh. The gobblers and their cruelty, their fear of dust, the city and the aurora, her father in Svalbard, her mother, and where was she? The alethiometer, the witches flying northward, and poor little Tony Macarios and the clockwork spyfly and Eoric Burnison's uncanny fencing. She fell asleep, and every hour they drew closer to Bolvanger. Missed this time she fell asleep. I know, she fell asleep again! again. Twice! In one chapter, my god! I envy this life of sleeping. Big mood. Big mood. Oh, and so that brings us to chapter 14. Bolvanger Lights. They don't tell Lyra, but this adult squad is kind of worried that they haven't heard anything about Mrs. Coulter. But turns out all on her own, Lyra is also worried. Because now Azrael has become father in her mind. But Mrs. Coulter has become the opposite. And she knows that Mrs. Coulter's hunting for her and Pan and the alethiometer. Yeah, but the first enemy to catch them isn't Mrs. Coulter. Da-da-da. The party takes a break to give the dogs and people rest and prepare their weapons and regas the balloon for ranging in the sky, but a thick mist descends and Lee can't fly the balloon, so he works on his equipment. 
Arrows come in the night, killing three Egyptians so silently, no one hears, and by the time it's noticed, it's too late, arrows are coming at them. John Fa understands it all first. He yells commands out. Lyra's in the open, Pan knocks her over, he gets into the form of a leopard and takes her down, so she doesn't get hit. She hears a mighty roar, and Eoric enters the fray in his armor, followed by crunching and tearing and screaming sounds. Yes, because Yorick is good at fighting in this. Unlike the squishy humans whose hands are <laughs> stiff from the cold, Yorick is floofy and therefore not stiff from the cold. This is his jam. Man, this is going to look great with all that CGI. <laughs> I can't wait to watch Yorick fight in, in the show. That's that's exciting. Bear dad. More men fall per minute. And the enemy is still not in sight. Who is it? <laughs> Lyra begins to despair but is interrupted in this despair by another demon hurtling toward them and knocking down Pan. Then suddenly, strange hands are hauling her and tossing her into the air, and she is pushed face down into the snow, dizzy and in pain. Someone lashes her wrists together, and a hood is put over her head to muffle her screams, and Pan tries to comfort her and free up her mouth so she can breathe better. Yikes. And it's obvious because not only did they say it's not Mrs. Coulter, but, like, Mrs. Coulter's a little, like, She's flashy. She wants to stand in front of you and dangle you, you know, and be like, Yeah. Oh, this is what we're doing. I'm an evil villain. Here's my monologue. Yeah, and she doesn't want to take in that way. She wants as much as she can to first try and coax people. She wants people to come to her. Yeah. She wants to coerce them so she's not really the villain in her eyes. Um, yeah. So, Pan tells Lyra that the people look like Tartars, and Lyra's like, I should have foreseen this on the alethiometer. But he hushes her, and she has to pretend to be unconscious. She worries they'll take them to gobblers, and she thinks about the word severed. Pan tells her he'll fight, and she says she'll fight too and kill them. And Eorik will too. When he finds out, they'll be ripped to pieces. I think it's kind of funny that and I don't think, again, that I'm supposed to think that hard about it, but Lyra asked Pan, like, where are we? Do you think we're close to Baltfinger? And Pan's like, yeah, I think we're pretty close. And I don't know how good anyone is at navigating a place that they don't know and with a hood on their face, but okay. Also, it's okay, like Pullman. literally just acres and acres and acres and acres and acres of land, and it's just covered in snow. Yeah. Like, sometimes there's nothing in between but snow, the places. Like, how do you know? Yeah, and I mean, I guess she learned a little bit while with the Egyptians' right to navigate using the stars. Yeah. But, like, there's a hood over her head, and it sounds like Pan is inside the hood with her, so. After a while, they do pull the hood from her head, and the man who dehoods her has Wolverine, Damon, who snarls back at Pan, and so they haul her to, like, sit against the side of the sledge. Uh, just to give a quick animal corner, we did talk about the Wolverine last episode, little more positive light, the man with the rifle in the Fisher Village was who had the Wolverine, but here it's obviously in a bit more of a negative tone, and uh, if you remember what I said in episode four, it was that it can be a premonition connected to evil or negative energy. Hmm. Hmm. And hmm. yes, I quoted myself. I mean, you're very quotable. Thank you, Eliana. So are. Lyra keeps falling over, so they untie her hands and tie her feet instead. Uh, the man speaks to her, but she doesn't understand his language. He finally tries some disconnected English and asks her name. So let's say real talk for a moment. 
Because this guy lands on English as the third language that he tries, mm. and she can still more or less understand his meaning, and I just think that's really fucking impressive. Absolutely it's, impressive. It's and trilingual. Also, it also shows that, like, she's in a new land, dude. A weird yeah. land. These are people that are not, like, you don't just show up, and, and she's noticed it when she went to Tony, too, right? Like, you have... The people that do not speak her language whatsoever. They are just showing up with a rifle or... Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. But instead of them, like, talking to the bear than her, you know, this guy can do it. I'm like, damn, good for you. Yeah. Good for you. Liars relieved because this means that they didn't get her because of Mrs. Coulter. They just happened to grab her because. She says her name is Lizzie Brooks to him, and he says that he's a Samoyed hunter, and he's taking them to a nice place. Okay. <laughs> he laughs that they took her even with the Panzerbjorn there. He's like, take that. Take that, motherfuckers. He asks who the people she was with are, and she says that they were traders who sell smoke leaf and buy furs. And then she tries to see where they are, but all she sees is snow. Okay, Chloe. What? <laughs> <laughs> She and Pan feel each other's thoughts, and they try to stay calm, but she's worried that John Fa could be dead, and she doesn't even know what happened to Fardor Coram. Uh, I'm actually way more invested in Fardor Coram than John Fa. Yeah, big mood. But also, is this like how twins feel? If we have any twin listeners, so twi- twinisters, twi- um, I got nothing. If we have any twin listeners, please let me know. Is this how twins feel? Because like, it sounds similar, I'm guessing, right? Like sensations and a strong natural intuition that they share. Not telepathy, but different. Like she says, she's feeling Pan's thoughts. Hmm. Is this a thing? I don't know. I don't know. We're both only children. I know. I'm just trying to relate to our twin listeners today. I know. Uh, She worries about Eeyore killing off the other men and wonders if they'd be able to find her. Beginning to worry. After a while, the man gives her a strip of dried reindeer meat and she chews it to feel better. She carefully finds the alethiometer, slips it into her boot. Pan helps to push it down, and she closes her eyes. She's exhausted by fear, and she falls asleep. She awakens to a smoother movement in the sledge and opens her eyes and finds bright lights above her, pulling her hood up to soften them. The sled is taking her under ambaric light poles with a low building ahead, tunnels connected to other buildings attached to it and outlined by a high metal fence. Talk about uh, our last chapter, fencing. Here's the real fencing. Yeah, this is the nice place, everyone. This is supposed to be the good place. Yeah. She's thrust inside like a trophy and given to a man. He could have been the Jordan Scholar, is what she thinks. He looks nothing like the Samoyed or the Tartars. The man asks if Lyra speaks English and then asks her if her demon always takes that form. So in response, Pan changes into a falcon to answer his question then... This guy gives the Samoyed men money for their catch. Gonna throw it out there, Pan. Changing, changing form. Wrong answer. Also, throwing it out there. The Samoyed men are literally, literally child traffickers. Yeah. This is their industry. Not all of them, of course, but these guys up here are. The ones with Wolverine, like, I guess demons because obviously there must be other people in their society who have different demons who have decided this is not a good occupation i definitely have some thoughts on pan changing and we'll talk about that in a bit um god 
he does change into a falcon too which on top of that uh falcons are kind of outlandish right they they often symbolize protection though which i thought was Mm. interesting especially in the situation with lyra so this sudden change was almost like a chest puff right like a come near me bitch sure but tell me about marmots i'm not gonna do that so (laughs) i want to know about marmots you know the the man asks lyra's name god damn it and she notes that he looks like the type of person she would meet at mrs coulter's get-togethers he looks english educated smart and she thinks he could have been a scholar as we said now knowing what we know about mrs coulter and the church's involvement it turns out um the church is running everything like as you go deeper in this facility it's very obvious yeah and we're going to obviously talk about that a little more. Lyra tells this guy, she's Lizzie Brooks, sticking to her disguise. And he invites her in, saying that they'll look after her. And she decides she's going to play dim-witted and reluctant while here and drags her feet inside. And then inside, turns out it's unbearably warm. It's a brightly lit, white surface and stainless steel. She can smell food, bacon, and coffee. Ooh. And also underlying the perpetual quote-unquote hospital smell. And a low humming noise comes from the walls. Pan has now turned into a goldfinch and is whispering and reminding Lyra to be really slow and stupid. He says, after being a falcon. Um, Animal corner for a second. Goldfinches often indicate simplicity. I thought that was very interesting. That is interesting. I wouldn't have thought about that. Just a little food for goldfinch thought, little goldfinch. Uh, Lyra's brought into a room of adults. Nurses and men in white coats discussing whether she was found the quote-unquote usual way through the hunters and her backstory. They have a woman named Sister Clara who's here to take her to get checked out. Lyra follows her. They pass the hall where children are eating, passing the sound of forks and knives and spoons, and Lyra thinks the woman is about the age of Mrs. Coulter. She seems brisk, blank, and sensible with a white trotting dog following her that gives Lyra the chills. Lyra tells her her name, yeah, and the age, when asked, Lizzie, age 11. She thinks she'd been told she was too small for her age, so 11 works. She shrinks physically as well, making herself seem and feel small and insignificant. Sister Clara seems to show little interest, though, and her demon is very unresponsive. (sighs) Yes. They enter into what seems to be a medical examining room, and the nurse has her take her clothes off for a quick checkup, and then gives her a shower and new clothes because Lyra's pretty dirty. She feels (laughs) shame at her nudity, but then she acts dumb in order to hide that shame. I find that really interesting. The church causing shame? I would never believe it. (laughs) I, yeah, um... It's not the first time either, right? Right. This is last time Lyra was naked in front of, like, you know, another woman like this. Mrs. Coulter made Lyra feel shame. It was something that Lyra had never really thought about before, but it's because Mrs. Coulter made Pan look away, her own self, right? But if this is a story, right, inspired by the fall from innocence, inspired by a paradise lost and lyra is eve well one of the first things that eve and adam notice upon biting 
from the fruit of knowledge is that they are naked and they look to cover themselves. Mm. And this gradual realization, I think, shows Lyra's movement into the world of quote unquote knowledge. Yeah, so. we'll see kind of how that path goes going forward, too. Yeah, for sure. The woman comes across Lyra's belt that holds the alethiometer. Even though this is interesting, wasn't it in her shoe? No, the she moved the alethiometer into her furs and then stuffed the spy fly into her shoe. Ah, okay, I see. Uh, Lyra says that it's a toy, and the nurse seems not to notice that it's anything special. She sends her in to shower. After her shower, the nurse takes her temperature and checks her eyes and ears, measures, weighs her, takes notes, gives her pajamas, and a dressing gown. They're clean and good quality, like what Tony Makarios was found in, but Lyra feels uneasy, like there's a secondhand air to them. The nurse says that they'll wash her clothes, and Lyra asks where they are. The nurse calls it the experimental station. Lyra asks for her toy back, and the nurse asks if she wants a pretty doll instead, or a bear. Ah, uh, she hmm. does. I didn't even think about that. She does uh, want the bear back. But Lyra takes a toy to please the woman and asks for her belt as well to put her lithiometer in. The woman allows it and after answering a phone, tells her they'll find her some food to eat and ushers her into the canteen. A dozen round tables are assembled and they're covered in sticky crumbs and a steel trolley is out with all these used plates and utensils. There are no windows. There's only a photogram of a tropical beach. And the man from the front reception area who brought her into the room with the nurse tells her, eat up. <laughs> I, I, I like this like photogram, right? That we're told there are no windows, there's no outside world or like natural light. And just this like nice looking tropical breeze, nice looking tropical beach. It's feels to me in the theme of everything else here, the illusion of utopia, the illusion of heaven. Reading too much into it. I think that's an interesting illusion to have right especially for these kids that are completely hopeless and their lives are dashed i mean all these kids know why they're there people cared about the kids right no one cared enough to stop this Reed. governmental body this governmental body and allowing them we're gonna do it now and allowing them to take these kids to steal them like lyra's literally stolen right mm -hmm. She says it's from her parents. They're stolen from their parents and put in here, and they act like it's okay. And we all know that it's not. And I think that a lot of people here have already probably read this book, or if you know, you've seen what happens to Tony and Macarios, right? You know that this is an institution that does this. And I just think it's horrific to see it in this book. I think it's horrific that it's happening in real life. It's happening in our country. Every day. Every moment. Every day. Here in the U.S., children who are stolen and parted from their parents, right, and being held in government facilities and detention centers and concentration camps, for what? They were just trying to have a better life, and no one listened to them or cared about them in the way that people didn't care about the Egyptians because they weren't, you know, the right ethnicity, or I mean, race look at adoption why do you think it's that much money to adopt someone oh well i'm just saying like if if you're horrified by the things that are happening to these children in the golden compass like literally children babies are being taken away from their parents and 
this is traumatic. Like it's, it's a traumatic experience for them in the way that I think having maybe your demon would be traumatic. Like this is a formative experience in formative years. It's an absolute horror. And having that taken away from you. Yeah. Horror. Absolutely. Lyra eats stew and mashed potatoes and tin peaches and ice cream because it's not you starving. And the man and nurse talk quietly. They bring her a warm glass of milk. The man comes to sit opposite of her and asks her where she came from, why she was so far north, and she mumbles her responses, keeps her eyes down, and says she came with her father, trading with a load of new Danish smoke leaf and to buy furs. He asks if they came alone, and she says no, they came with her uncles and some other men. She tells him two years ago he brought her brother and said he would bring her next, but he never did. She kept bugging him and asking him to bring her till she would. Till he would. Very smart. Lyra's like peak Asriel daughter mode right here. And to be fair, mm-hmm. Mrs. Coulter as well. Yeah. She's just laying it on though. The charm, the charisma, she's got it going. Man, those two must have played so many mind games with each other. They still do. I feel like the sex was amazing. Oh, for sure. He tells her that she's a lucky little girl. That's weird after that discussion. Sure is. And the huntsman who found her wandering brought her to such a good place. It's not a good place. (laughs) This is a nightmare. Lyra says, that's not how it happened. They attacked the traitors with arrows. He tells her, no, 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 that's wrong. You must have wandered away from the party. And she begins to speak louder and starts to cry to him, saying, no, I saw arrows and I want my dad. And he tells her, no, the cold must have given you bad dreams. And she couldn't understand that was real or not. And your father is safe and sound. And he's going to he's gonna come here and find you soon uh, because this is the only place for hundreds of miles. And he says, Sister Clara is going to take you to the dorm. And you're going to meet other children who've gotten lost in the woods lately and like damn this is some hardcore gaslighting but i mean dude this happens in real life it's messed up because it's like okay lost in the woods kids don't just get lost in the woods and end up in a half medical facility they're not dumb all these kids as we're about to learn know what they're doing and lying about it to their face makes you worse than the villains that tell the truth like those guys are just serial killers these guys are something worse yeah So Pan settles into mouse form in her pocket, and she gets into bed, ever so sleepy. Somebody shakes her awake, though, eventually, and she checks immediately for the alethiometer. She feels it at her waist. I mean, like, dude, this is like the third, it actually might be the fourth time. It's the fourth. That, yeah, that she's fallen asleep just in this moment, in these two chapters already. To be fair, it's covering, like, five days or so that's true i just think it's funny that it's called out every time she goes to sleep more like his sleepy materials it is big mood i wonder if like granted this is i think a little mature to be read as a bedtime story but i imagine you know a parent or something reading it to their kids and every time lyra goes to sleep they're like now it's time for you to go to sleep that's how i feel are you my parent Are you my mother, Thoros? So Lyra tries to wake up, but she's so tired. There are three girls around her age gathered at her foot of her bed, talking about how Lyra must have been given sleeping pills, and they start to question her. They're asking her name, if other kids are coming, and where she was gotten at, where she was taken. She doesn't remember taking a sleeping pill, but she thinks her drink could have been drugged. She asks where they are, but none of the girls know. The girls seem kind of confused. Usually they bring an amount of children that is massive at once. Lyra asks what they do here in the facility, but none of the girls know exactly. 
One says they measure dust, and the other girls start to argue with her. They take us away one by one, and no one comes back. They tell her it's the gobblers, and Lyra is starting to slowly wake up, and the girls have their demons guarding the door. The red-haired girl is Annie, and the dark, plump girl is named Bella, and the thin one is named Martha. And turns out in this facility they keep children of different sexes apart for the most part, but it's also mostly boring at the facility. Except for when Mrs. Coulter comes, says Annie. And Lyra and Pan have to stop themselves from crying out, and then Pan ruffles his wings. It really speaks to that iconic moment of the golden monkey demon pinning down Pan. That it, it, This is reliving that moment. Every time that she thinks about Mrs. Coulter, it's reliving that agony once more. And it recurs throughout the chapters we've been reading, and it, it keeps going, too. It really ingrains itself in our brains, right? It really does. That's yeah. what she thinks of her. That's who that is to her. Yeah, I mean, it was the woman who hurt her. Yeah. Lyra asks who Mrs. Coulter is, playing dumb, and they tell her she tracked most of them, and that when she comes, you know kids disappear. She likes to watch them, says the girl. They reckon that they kill them, and she watches. They never stop measuring the kids, the demons, or dust. Lyra asks what dust they're talking about. And one of the girls says, it's not real dust, it's space dust, and everyone gets it in the end. But if you don't have any, that's good. Bella says she heard a boy named Simon say the Tartars make holes in their heads to let dust in. Hmm, that's interesting. Annie says she's going to ask Mrs. Coulter when she comes, and Martha says, you won't dare. Lyra asks when Mrs. Coulter is next coming. They say, the day after tomorrow. Da-da-da! A cold drench of terror went down Lyra's spine, and Pentelimon crept very close. She had one day in which to find Roger and discover whatever she could about this place, and either escape or be rescued. And if all the Egyptians had been killed, who would help the children stay alive in the icy wilderness? The other girls went on talking, but Lyra and Pentelimon nestled down deep in the bed and tried to get warm, knowing that for hundreds of miles all around her little bed there was nothing but fear. Ugh. Horrible. I hate that she's there. Yeah, it's very nerve-wracking. It's my daughter. It is. She's there. Well, you guys, we're on the last chapter of the episode. Chapter 15, The Demon Cages. Children are being kept in cages. In real life. Uh, Lyra, it turns out, is not actually imaginative. She's just a good liar, which is why her lies have wide-eyed conviction. So, I still kind of low-key don't understand this. I kind of do, and I kind of don't. Like, doesn't someone have to have a good imagination to be a good liar? Like, we've seen Lyra embellishing on stories and her lies. It's really, really imaginative, in my opinion. But at the same time, like, I guess this is supposed to be, I don't know, some part of consistency because Lyra's alleged lack of imagination is probably what also makes her good at reading the alethiometer. Like we brought this up last episode in regards to like the La Belle Sauvage where they discuss that those who are less imaginative are actually better at reading the alethiometer because people with too much imagination tend to kind of read anything that they want into the symbols. Yeah, that makes sense too. And I wonder if it's another metaphor of reality of sorts. Like to Lyra She's not lying. She's saving her own ass all the time, right? She's starting a war for some bung. She's 
uh, it's not lying. They're just words and things when you're a kid. But as we age, those acts and those things and those words become imaginary and play and distant, something we don't visit as often. So when we do, they're imaginary. So I guess like life becomes real eventually is what it is. Damn, that's real. That's fucking real. Right? I, I mean, that's that's all I can think of when I think about it is that for Lyra, it's not lying. And I think it also has a lot to do with our consequences of actions mm-hmm. and how like you're going to have unintended consequences that follow actions. Mm. And as a kid, you don't feel those unintended consequences, right? As a kid, especially if you have support uh, and family members that are willing to be there and support you or are there and support you, you don't, as a kid, you don't worry about those unintended consequences. You have to pay for your actions and your consequences, but if they're unintended, you don't always have to pay for them as a kid. Yeah, and there's all of that, and also, like, I think what you're saying also about how these become real for her is interesting because she isn't there a point where she tells Makasa she's like yeah I remember I know the story so well now like I've told it so many times that yep. I basically feel like I was there I was there I remember all of it and she's like but she was an infant she doesn't yeah, remember Makasa's it Makasa's like there, were, there weren't swords Lyra where did that come from yep I love that so I, I think that what you said makes sense for all of that. Someday we have to grow up. And even regarding what you were just speaking about with the alethiometer, someday we have to grow up. Can't just be looking at pictures all day. Um, God, I wish. Sh- Lyra isn't afraid for the Egyptians, though, because they're all good fighters. And they'll be along to rescue her soon. Because apparently in Lyra, because Lyra has a lack of imagination, according to this, she's like, yeah, it's going to be fine. Because she doesn't imagine all the terrible things that could happen, right? She's like, yeah. They're going to come. They're going to rescue us. York's going to be fine. He's going to come in. We're all going to fly and save Asriel from Svalbard and Lee Scoresby's balloon. And I am going to find Roger. And it's going to be great. And the next morning she does. Finally, we've been hinting Roger was going to come back up. So, and now she's found him. So this was a good book. This is a good book. Everyone can go home. Yeah. I mean, like I was talking about earlier how... Sometimes you just stop reading things at certain parts. And there have been shows that I've just stopped. I'm like, this is a good ending. I'm just yeah. stopped. Here you go. This is it, guys. Uh, chapter 15. This is <laughs> the end it. of the book. So the nurse wakes them and ushers them into the canteen. Roger sits with five boys and Lyra drops a handkerchief next to him so Pan can talk to his demon, Celcilia, who is a chaffinch uh, fluttering around everywhere in Animal Corner. Chaffinch, a type of finch, which we've already talked about golden finch this episode. Chaffinches tend to symbolize joy, celebration, and happiness in spiritual totems. And in Christianity, its coloring is really celebrated. It's fire, red, water, blue, and ether, white. And it also has a little bit of darkness and light. And symbolically, it's also been linked to grain, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, It's named for its tendency to peck the grain out in farmyards. I'm like fucking Ho-Oh from Gen 2 Pokemon. Yeah, and it's Tower. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that storyline. Pan pins down Salsilia and is like, chill, chill. And Roger goes white. I had never seen anyone lose so much color in their face and his face then brims with color and joy as he realizes it's Lyra and Pan then shakes Salsilia to keep Roger from shouting out. 
he, uh, this is he, kind of a comical scene. It is cute. It does also remind me, though, of like the anti Coulter's demon attacking Pan. Mm. Pan has to pin down Salcilia to be like, girl, Chill. get with it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, yeah, but get with it. Roger immediately falls back in line, right? Like this is his commander who just showed up and she's here and he follows Lyra's social cues. He acts like they don't know each other, just like the battles they faced in Oxford. She doesn't have a chance to talk to Roger again until mid-morning and they have to make it look supernatural. Most girls don't speak to boys anymore in this age group. So while the children come in for a snack, she sends Pan to talk to Celcilia in the form of a fly. She pretends to look rebellious and bummed while they talk, sipping milk with the other girls. Not a very Lyra scene, but she hears a name said from a blonde girl that piques her interest, Tony Macarios. I do think Lyra could do it, though, right? Because I think she's had the good fortune of constantly shirking the Jordan scholars Mm -hmm. to go meet with the other children and play with them and find bugs. And... Even though she was, like, raised in a really stuffy college with a bunch of, like, old men, she did have the opportunity to meet and mingle with other kids and all kinds of people, which allows her that experience to be able to bond with the other kids here. Yeah, because up until this point, it was only Coulter, and it's disappointing because it's, like, that's the only female-female influence, obviously, yeah. you see, yeah. besides Ma Costa, which we don't see before then. Uh, it, interesting. We do get some other female influences in Lyra's life later which I'm excited about I don't know if I'm excited about it what do you think you don't like I was kidding of course I'm fucking excited I was being sarcastic oh I was like how dare you (laughs) she's a doctor she didn't work this hard for you to disrespect her like that the girl says they took Tony because his demon didn't change they thought maybe he was older than he said that's ironic because Lyra just said she was younger than she actually is Um, It turns out his demon didn't change because he didn't think about things much. Lyra has been acting dull, but Pan keeps changing shape, as we noted earlier. I thought Mm -hmm. this was interesting. He's kind of like giving them away, especially when he turned into a falcon. That's not normal. Yeah, that's true. Especially because it was a very spirited, spirited take. Yeah, it was like, oh, you want me to change, Emmerafer? Here I am. Demon puberty. Yeah, as opposed to like Lyra answering herself. I think that's yeah. a that's a really great catch. The kids argue about why do these people take us? And the young girl speaks up. She knows why they took Tony Macario's because she was with him in the linen room when they did. Interestingly, there's a there's a line about how no one like makes fun of them or says anything. So she goes on talking about how the nurse came, saying that they wouldn't hurt him. We just do a little operation after we put you to sleep, and then you're going to wake up, and you're not going to feel a thing, and your daemon's going to go to sleep too. But Tony didn't believe her, and knew that she was going to kill his demon. And she said, oh, it's just something to make you more grown up. A cut. That's all the grown-ups have it. It's why their demons don't change. I can tell you right now, not all the grown-ups have it. Oh. So Sister Clara... And a new man in a white coat interrupt all this gossiping, and they ask for the blonde girl with the squirrel demon to come with them, Bridget McGinn. Her her face is lit up with fear, and this is so sad. I didn't get sad about this really as much until now, but Bridget was Tony's Lyra, right? Like, that's 
Roger's Lyra, that's Tony's Lyra. They hid in the linen closet together. Bridget was so brave. She didn't want him to be taken. She stayed with him. Uh, it is sad. sad. I'm so sad. Now it's come for her. Yep. Because she tried to spread the truth and she was shut down. Damn. Yep. So the rest of the morning is spent exercising in the small gym. Lyra had never played a team game before, like the one they began playing. And of course, she quickly becomes the leader and she excels at the game. It's the perfect activity for her, even in some weird medical facility where they basically keep killing kids to harness magic. Lyra is leading her own gang, naturally. All of them, <laughs> yes, girls, natu- boys, just here she is. Naturally. Yeah, that's what I love. It's so nonchalant oh. that he's just like, so then Lyra led a whole gang. Yeah. Oh, they're going to find the bung of this facility. And so at lunchtime, they all line up at the canteen, and Billy Costa finds her. She tells him that her brother and John Fodd, everyone else, they're all coming to rescue you and take everyone home. And I'm just really excited for Billy and Ma Costa. (sighs) Me too. Ron and his mom. Ron Weasley and Molly Weasley. Yes. And I guess, and and his brother too, but I'm more excited for Ma Costa. Yeah. She tells Billy, though, you gotta call me Lizzie. All right. And then they sit together with Roger nearby and the boys tell Lyra everything that they know. And Roger points out that there's a hiding place by the tropical beach photogram to her. There's a ceiling tile that they can get into to crawl inside and hide and escape. But later on, they're interrupted. A doctor bangs on the table and alerts them. There's going to be a fire drill later on. How convenient. <laughs> Lyra's like, this is an interesting event. Hmm, all the cards happen to be falling in place for our protagonists. All uh, I needed to do was not have any imagination. <laughs> Before the fire drill, Lyra and four other girls are being tested for dust. The doctors don't tell them what the tests are for, but Lyra can tell. They're taken one by one into the lab. Lyra complains. She says, I was measured yesterday, but they're like, we need different measurements today. They have her stand on a metal plate and hold pan and stare at a green light. Clicking and flashing noises go on. She asks them if they're measuring for dust and says a nameless girl at lunch told her and that she knows she, I ain't dusty. They say it's a special unseen (laughs) dust and continue to test her, having her rest her hand on a brass globe, sending ambaric currents through her. Yeah, the sticking her hand in an unknown thing gives me Dune vibes. There's also, Hmm. like, earlier they talk about how, what, the demons and stuff like get weighed and they make them change and i i need to know now does their weight change i desperately want to know this it's not it doesn't affect the story at all yeah and we don't really get to know yeah we should ask that's a philip pullman question oh my god he's probably not going to answer it hour of (laughs) the pan questions that i have (laughs) hour yeah hour of the demon Pan is in his tense wildcat form and he prowls around the apparatus. Lyra keeps asking questions because she's now in disguise and she like asks, try, she tries to do it simply. She's like, why do they cut Damon's away? Saying, this girl told me so. And now the doctor's agitated and it's like, oh no, that's not true. That doesn't happen. When we remove children, it's to move them to another place because they're older now. And he asks, which girl is it? What does she look like? And the doctor goes to speak to the nurse quietly and 
the description Lyra gives is, oh, it's someone with, like, light brown hair. And I'm like, you? Is this <laughs> you, Lyra? <sighs> yeah, so their demons also converse, the doctor and the nurses. A very neat blank bird and a heavy large moth speak to each other. And the demons are both awake, but Lyra notices they aren't animated and they're not really moving. Hmm. Uh, the word severed comes to mind again. Yes, especially with that creepy poodle earlier. Yeah, the dog, for sure. The doctor comes back, weighing Lyra and watching her from a special screen. Then the fire alarm goes off, and he directs her to go with the nurse, Sister Betty. But Lyra's like, I have no outdoor clothes, it's really fucking cold out there. And then she remembers that her clothes are in the closet of one of the nursing station rooms. And she asks if she can retrieve them. Betty lets her, and they head outdoors, and Lyra is bundled in furs. And it's chaos outside, because for some reason, even though they have fire alarms and fire drills, they've never <laughs> gone over a plan for it, I guess. Is this the first time they've done this? Like, my god. <laughs> So kids, adults, everyone are milling about. Some are irritated, some are dazed. I'm irritated. Lyra, I'm irritated too. Lyra finds Billy and Roger immediately and they use the chaos to their advantage. Lyra starts a snowball fight between all the kids very quietly and then they immediately bail to go explore. I just want to say this is a plot device in Avatar The Last Airbender with the riot. Yes. It's brilliant, truly. It's very it really good Lyra is. work. It is. They find a small building that's set apart from the rest of the buildings. There's no tunnel attached to it, and low ambaric lighting is around it with Entry Forbidden stamped in red on it. They're about to head into the building when they see a bird. <gasps> no, a plane. <gasps> no, it's a witch's demon. It's Kaiser <gasps> the Snow Goose. The goose is loose. The goose is loose. Honk honk, bitches. Pew, pew, pew! Honk, honk, honk! Honk, honk, honk! It's Kaiza, my lovely demon. Seraphita Pakala's demon. I love it so. Yes, Kaiza followed her here, and he's been waiting her to come out in the open once more. Um, Kaiza needs zero animal corner because Kaiza's the best. Uh, yeah, the goose symbolizes insurance. Uh, the policies. goose symbolizes owning your ass. Oh, okay. Kaiza owns you all. <gasps> Most of the Egyptian party are safe. John Fa is wounded, but not severely, and they're all just about a day away. And Lyra has the boys keep watch. She tells Kaiza what they're doing here. They're cutting children's demons away. Kaiza repulsed helps unlock the door, and then Kaiza, Pan, and Lyra enter their seat, and they s enter... And they see the demons of the children kept in glass cases. They're frightened and pale and scared. And of course, we'll see in a second, but some of them aren't there anymore. Um, God, it's awful. It's disgusting. She, she tells Pan not to look at it. And I love how protective she is of Pan. And Kaisa cries out in anger, wondering where these children have gone. Lyra explains about what happened to Tony, and she can hear the faint cries and misery from the demons. There's a name in front of each of the cases, and an empty one with Tony Makarios on it, and four or five other empty cases with names on them. And this is kind of like a chilling thought, but like, so if the cases are empty, 
that means the demons didn't make it. Right? Like, and it's, is it possible for them to make it, though? Like, I, I fear that this experiment that we're seeing happen. Yeah. That means it's, it's, like, there's no way to do this. There's no way to sever a child from their demons successfully. Do all these demons just die? It's something that I've, like, kind of been wondering. Like, it, it's a question that's kind of haunted me. I don't know if they die, and it's something that, like, is it empty because the child died? Is it empty because the demon died and then the child died? Like, for reasons that we'll discuss later, it kind of gives me more comfort, right? If it means, like, the chi- if the child passes away and the... It kind of gives me more comfort if, like, you know, it means, like, the child died and then the demon died. Uh, as opposed to, like, if the child passes away and the demon survives, or, like, the other way around. Both of those, like, unnerve me. But if both of them pass away, then I feel more comfort in that for reasons that we'll discuss later in the story. Yeah, absolutely. And, I don't know, it just makes me think, because we're seeing the nurse and the doctor with these plain demons that don't really feel a response, so it's like, they're likely severed, but that means adults can do it and children cannot. I do think that that that's what seems I to be the think. case. And this really isn't spoilers or anything because it's just not addressed. It's, it's happening implied. right here. It's happening right now, and it's yeah, it's implied. It's not like a direct answer. So I don't know. That's kind of what I've been taking from it. I'm glad we're on the same page because it's gross and sad. Um, and Lyra is upset, right? Like, she sees these cases and she wants to smash them. She looks around for a weapon, but Kaiza interrupts and is like, we have to do this the smart way. If we make it look like they forgot to lock it and the demons escaped on their own, it will be much better. Yeah, Lyra's anger is really righteous. It's not always strategic, but I also think in her defense, maybe you don't always know that you have a magic goose with you, you know? (laughs) Because Kaiza tells her, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get some snow. We're going to blow on the cages when I tell you to. And then, bam, it's going to unlock the cage. Wow. I didn't realize Kaiza had, like, snow powers. I know I read this, but now I'm like, wow, is Kaiza just, like, sprinkling snow and going, bitches and magic? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Probably. That's probably what he does, like, on his, his journeys when he's bored. He's, like, <laughs> flaps his wings into the snow, like, Pah. so the demons begin to stumble out they're confused they're discombobulated they're cold they cluster around lyra they try to touch her but the taboo keeps them away kaisa tells lyra to be brave that the egyptians are coming for her and that he will help the demons find their people but then he adds they'll never be whole again Uh, kaisa says he'll cover their tracks but hurry. Lyra stops him before he flies off, asking him one last thing. If witches fly, could they pull a balloon? And will Serafina come? Kaiza says there isn't enough time to explain witch politics, that Serafina would have to guard her clan's interests, but they'll see what happens. Roger watches the demons drift out of the building and exclaims it's just like the demons in the crypt in Jordan. Like I said, here we are again. Kaiza gathers the demons, convincing them to turn into birds, and they follow him, rising in a ragged line in the sky. Roger and Lyra join Billy and the rest of the children, who line up by the door now. Lyra tells Billy and Roger to pass the word out. They're going to escape and to wait for the fire alarm as the signal. 
Yeah. The Job staffers <laughs> are disorganized as they count the children back in, making sure no one's wandered off. Done a terrible job. They're disorganized at many things, it turns out, because from the outdoor clothes to keeping children in a line, Lyra thinks, oh, I'm going to be able to use this to my advantage. She's not worried. Like, she's not yeah. freaked out. I'm like, Lyra, girl. She's like, this is going all according to Kikaku. And the caretakers are actually almost finished. But then, no, a new distraction arrives. Lyra defeated the boss over at Balvangar, And now here's a round two. Because it's the last distraction that Lyra could want. It's a zeppelin. It's an engine. Roaring in the sky. <sighs> Pan turns into a wildcat. He's hissing in hatred because there's no mistaking who the new boss is in the zeppelin. It's Marissa Coulter. Sitting in the cabin of the Zeppelin with her golden demon in her lap. I'm a boss ass bitch, 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 bitch. Oh, were we not gonna sing oh, we slash could, oh, rap it? I mean, we could do rap. that. No, I no, was no, thinking I'm bossy. I'm the bitch. I'm bossy. Hate. I'm the bitch y'all love to hate. It's I'm true. The one that raised the stakes. I'm okay. She is. Yeah, I mean, I die for do. her. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. What? <gasps> Stuff yeah, on yes. me, mom. Oh, okay. Um, it's a sex thing, I guess. I don't know. Anyways, this is yeah. I I think the way you feel is the reason why Pullman loves ending chapters with Mrs. Coulter, though. Like she's just he ended with Coulter just being Coulter. Like she's just there and dramatic all on her own. Like it's like what I was saying earlier, right? That yeah, we knew the villains that kidnapped her weren't Mrs. Coulter because this is Mrs. Coulter. She's like wearing stiletto heels, walking down off the zeppelin. What up, bitches? Hello, orphan children. You all smell like poor people, but I'm here. Yeah, I, it's like the moment she appears, you can hear, you know, you know the dramatic foghorn sound that happens in soundtracks and then drums yeah. and then bam, cut, episode over. I, I can totally see them ending the episode with this, whatever the episode is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm really excited to see. I'm really I'd... excited for the show. <laughs> Me too. But first, before we get excited for the show, let's move to our discussion. Ooh. Our discussion. So, as you all know, if you have only read the first book, which we've done a terrible job of keeping <laughs> unspoiled for everyone, <laughs> tune out now. We'll see you next time. But now we're going to talk about everything that happens in everything. Uh, which, again, we've kind of been doing anyway. <laughs> And now that I'm caught up, I've finished the Amber Spyglass. I'm working on La Belle Sauvage. So hopefully Eliana and I will be on the same page very soon. Literally the same page. Literally. 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 I'm trying to say it like Chris Traeger. Literally. Okay, Ann Perkins. (laughs) So in these chapters, Pan longs to comfort Tony, right? Hannah Lehman sat inside her hood, warm and close and full of pity, Lyra knew Panalaman's impulse was to reach out and cuddle the little half-child, to lick him and gentle him and warm him as his own demon would have done. But the great taboo prevented that, of course. I found this line to be quite meaningful because later on we're going to see Pan, of course, break that great taboo of his own accord to comfort Will, who has who still has his demon. It's just, like, invisible. But, like, Will's feeling like real sad and shit and like to show that pan wouldn't even break it for this poor severed child really emphasizes the strength of the feelings between lyra and will 
yeah, it really serves for that contrast. And I can see Pullman trying to build up to that, right? He wants it to be a taboo. Part of me doesn't know, like, if it is that taboo in my heart. I'm like, okay. But I see what he was trying to build. Um, I, I I understand it in the way of, like, it's weird. It would be weird to have someone, like, reach into you and touch, like, yeah. your heart and soul or whatever. In a way, I try to think of it like it's a service animal, you know? Oh, I think of it as, like, if my lungs and heart were literally on the outside of my body, but I could still feel it on the inside, and someone touched that, it, it, it uh... No, I see that. Sounds gross. That actually does sound really gross. I think that's what we're supposed to feel. <laughs> but, like, it's normal to touch your own? Your Well, I guess you don't feel it as much if it's, like, your own body and heart, right? Because you don't always feel it that much when you, like touch your hands against one another unless like one's super cold or hot or whatever right i mean people say that but like i can't touch my eyeballs it freaks me out like i had con- I-, I bought contacts once oh. and literally trying to put them in i started freaking out and having a panic attack so i don't know i guess it depends on who you are maybe it's like touching your yeah think of it as like someone else touching your eyeballs okay well that's horrible um <laughs> think of it like that you know, something else that you talked about, you expanded on earlier, I want to bring back, is sexuality. Lyra was ashamed of her body naked with the nurses and doctors. And like you said, we've seen it before when Coulter ordered Pan to look away when Lyra was naked. But this does kind of come back into play, right? Everything Lyra knows and everything the church has taught her and that she's learned in Jordan about the body is that, you know, that's shameful. Um, that's kind of the world that Christianity is in as well. It's a shameful thing, but you already mentioned her briefly this episode. I think I might have to have cut it out. Uh, Mary Malone teaches her that it's not shameful. Yeah, and and it's something to, in fact, be celebrated, right? Uh, Pullman, I think, stresses that when he talks about how, you know, when you're alive, enjoy it. Enjoy the sensations that you can experience. Yeah, I mean, Pullman fucked. Yeah, and I mean, and we see it also in the way that later on how the witches are described, right? They aren't hurt by the cold in the way that we squishy humans are, and so they enjoy feeling everything with their body. They love to feel the moonlight on their arms. Yeah, sometimes, and I think it goes back to that Plato discussion and Mm -hmm. Aristotle and Socrates discussion in general of like the soul and what it actually is and what makes a human and what fills a human, no sexual innuendo intended, uh, full of life. Hmm. I think it all yeah. comes back to that. Yeah, yeah. But I think there's a lot that we'll talk about in Amber's mm-hmm. Spyglass with, you know, shame related to religion and a lot that Lyra will experience and we'll talk about. Um, yeah, exactly. A line that I thought was a cool catch I didn't notice until now. Uh, when Roger is watching the demons drift out of the building and he's like, it's like the demons in the crypt in Jordan. Uh, Kaiza gathers them all up and convinces them that they should turn into birds and they follow Kaiza in a ragged line against the sky. This reminds me of Lyra and Will leading the dead out of the cave. Yeah, I think all of both Banger is like that in miniature. I was thinking like, is the small tile that small like hidden window in the yeah, fake heaven the window thing. yes i was yeah. thinking that too the, the 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 tile right the the a crack in the a wall imitation utopia 
Yeah. Yes. There's there's a lot. I, it's so weird that there's so much in this first it's book so that connects with the third book. Yeah. When I said earlier about how good, how interwoven all of this is, I oh my mean god, it. yes, it's so good. It's a it's amazing world building, especially for something that's so tight and concise. You know, like yes, he's making other books, but he told his story and he finished it. No shade intended to any other authors, but he did. He told his story. He put it out there, and the way he writes is different than other people. And he was just like, boom, boom. Boom. Also, I built all these hints into here that are going to relate to the future. And then he went from there, and I think that's awesome, and I really want to finish LaBelle. Yeah, Sam. I have Commonwealth Ugh. sitting there waiting for me, so... I haven't bought it yet. I need to do it. I'm, like, excited, and that that's going to just have to be my motivation. I drunk pre-ordered it. I'm, I'm going to try and buy it, like, at a local bookstore. Smart, right. smart. <sighs> Another thing that stood out to me, um, and you called it out with Lyra and the toys about how oh, she's choosing between the doll and the bear, and I, I didn't realize that there was a bear there, so great catch, but yeah, like it's it's fun rereading these, the story again in such quick succession, knowing things more, because like Lyra looking at the drawer full of the toys, there's the stuffed animals, and they're described like dead things. And it kind of reminds me of Tony Macarios and his dead fish, or that idea of mm. like the dull dead demons, which uh, really bums me out. But also instead, as we talked about, Lyra chooses a doll, and she's kind of acting like a doll now, right? She describes describes like its vapid eyes. But also I think dolls pop up a lot in this book, as we see in a bit at Svalbard, as Lyra tries to imitate and pretend to be a doll. She's inspired by Yofa Rackinson's doll. Interesting. I didn't really think about that. That's a great look. And then there's the whole idea that, like, she's choosing that obviously now and she doesn't mean it, as we know. Um, and like you but, said, that that dolls, you know, they, they're also symbolizing innocence. Mm. And she's playing that role because it's obvious from what we've now learned. They do not like older children because older children are not suited to their experiment. Um, and Lyra is calling herself Eleven saying she's younger than she is and yeah. now she's choosing it all yeah tony makarios would be a specter in sitagaze wouldn't he he is basically lyra's world specter that's what these children are yeah i think that that's interesting like that comparison but it's it's sad because while the specters in the other world right they hunger for dust they're never going to be able to get it. They're never going to get to grow up. Oh, that's why they die. Yeah. Because there's nowhere for them to go. You were asking earlier, like, does it just mean, like, the kids can never... It works for on adults, but not on kids. They're, like, spiritual refugees. Damn. Because they've just been traumatized and can't, like, move past it, I guess, as part of the yeah. metaphor, maybe? They're stuck in this world. It's fucked up. Fuck. Okay. Ugh. I'm going to move on to something a little less heavy. Uh, a little less. It's not that much less heavy. It's still about Tony Macarios, everyone. Because as, as we discussed, right, he, he dies. And Lyra, in the very moving scene, pays homage to him by placing the coin beneath his tongue. And on one hand, yes, she's honoring him, trying to give him a death in the same respect, right? The same station that would have been afforded to Jordan scholars, even though Tony was a boy and no one came to look for him no one no one cared about him but he mattered and lyra is trying to show that 
But there's also something to this whole coin beneath the tongue thing and the dead that I want to talk about. Like in ancient Greek mythology and culture, the dead had a coin placed beneath their tongue. It was called Charon's Obol. And it was something that was given to the dead because when they came to cross the river from the li- land of the living into the dead, they would use it to bribe the ferryman, Charon. Maybe it's pronounced Karen, but why would you put an H there? I don't know. Into their death across the rivers Styx and Acheron. And in the context of his dark materials, there's significance, I realize now, to the demons' names being written on these coins and and referencing this from Greek mythology. Because when Lyra, Will, and the Galavespians seek entrance into the world of the dead, they also have to be ferried into it. And the boatman tells them, no, they can't come. You have to leave your demon here on the shore. And Lyra, though, is the only one who knows her demon. So she's the only one who, at that point, knows what it costs. But So for the demon to be upon the coin is very on the nose because the price for Lyra's entry into the land of the dead, and quite frankly for all of them, mm. as we're going to see, is to lose their demon or soul. That's the price so that their spirit could enter the land of the dead. And I think we're going to talk a little more on this difference of the soul and the spirit in another episode, building on, you know, what you were talking about regarding Aristotle and Plato and that body-soul connection, bringing some other stuff from theology, but... I don't know. I, I didn't put it together earlier. And now I'm just like, oh, this That's is the uh, price. It's the price. It really is, though. The price for a fairy. The price for a fairy is that your spirit must lose its soul. God, public transport sucks in oh my the afterlife. <gasps> it oh. sucks. And then so does the final destination, too, apparently. <laughs> does, and then af- apparently. And then after that, you know, there's no more public transportation. You got to fucking walk your way into this small ass door. It's just like the Little Mermaid, like I said last episode. Wow, you're right. You turn then, into freaking mist on the on the water, and you go do good deeds until you get a soul, but in a happy way. After that, as opposed to the Little Mermaid. Yeah, I mean, in the way that like you couldn't kill the guy you were in love with that married some other chick, even though your family sacrificed a bunch to get you a magical sword to do so, so you could go back to your own life and you sacrifice love. Um, look, just watch Jane the Virgin and you learn that if you sacrifice things for love, it, it means it's real. Um, Jane the Virgin is a brilliant show. Uh, we're on season one. We're almost finished. I'm very happy about it. Oh my god, I'm so excited for you. It Season two can be, I think, a little difficult. Some people really like it. I think season two, towards the end, I was a little frustrated. Season four and five are masterpieces. <laughs> I know. I like, I I've wait. never bawled so hard in any show. To uh, ignore some of the sad, I do want to go back to that Snow Queen stuff I was talking about earlier. Uh, Regarding the Snow Queen and Lyra's journey, I didn't go very much into it because I feel like it spans over several of the books. There's a lot of little elements from Lyra's story that really match up. But the Snow Queen basically is a story where the devil has a magic mirror. It distorts anything that looks into it. It doesn't show the good. It magnifies the ugly. And he has a brief stint as a professor, and he brings this mirror to classes to distort things. His students try to carry it to heaven, because they're like, haha, let's go make fun of God. But it shakes with laughter as they get closer, and it breaks. The splinters get blown into people's hearts and eyes, and shards of it get into this boy named Kai. He's a friend of a village girl named Gerda, 
and the Snow Queen comes to town. Kai hitches a ride to her. He goes back to her palace, but everyone thinks he drowned in the river. Gerda wants to find him, so she tries to trade a really nice pair of shoes to the river for him back. The river's like, no, sweetie, the queen has him. Don't waste your shoes on us. So Gerda journeys to find him. She gets distracted on the way. She stops to visit a sorceress who's always wanted a daughter and traps her with very nice things. So nice she doesn't realize she's being trapped. Sound familiar at all until the very last minute. One day she wakes up and sees a rose that reminds her of her friend Kai and she cries, remembering her mission. And it raises a rose bush above the ground that tells her where she can find... It tells her that it can see all of the dead under the earth, but her friend is not among them. Hmm. That's interesting. So she goes on. She tries to ask other flowers, but the flowers don't know other stories. So she leaves. She feels like she wasted her time. She is cold. It's getting colder and she has no warm clothes. And she meets a prince and princess on the road. They gave her nice warm clothes and a carriage, but she's kidnapped and meets a robber girl who ends up freeing her in the middle of the night and gives her a reindeer to ride. The reindeer first takes her to a Finn woman's house. The Finn woman tells the reindeer that the only way to save Kai is with Gerda's innocent heart. She says, don't you see how strong that is? How men and animals are obliged to serve her and how well has she got through the world, barefooted as she is. She cannot receive any power from me greater than she now has which consists in her own purity and innocence of heart. I thought that was great. Very it much sounds, so, Lyra. It is, and it sounds very much like the language in the third book, where mm-hmm. they talk about how Lyra read the alethiometer because of grace. Yes. And she's that she is the only one that can solve her destiny because of how she is. Yes, and, and how men and animals are obliged to serve her <laughs> everyone's like yeah i would die for her <laughs> i know right it's lyra we gotta help lyra uh, and it's also very garden of eden and like you know them with all the aminals yes absolutely so lyra reaches the palace it's guarded by vicious snowflakes apparently mm. don't question uh she prays the <laughs> lord's prayer to gain entrance and her breath takes the form of angels that clear the snowflakes away. Kai is alone and immobile and despondent on the lake, much like we find Tony at his own lake. He can't leave because he's under a spell. He has to use the pieces of ice to form a word to break the spell, and if he figures the word out and does it, he can leave, the Snow Queen says. Gerda runs to him immediately, and she hugs him, and her tears warm him and cause him to move and dislodge the ice mirror shard that's in his eye, and they dance happily. The ice shards he was arranging dance with them, and they fall from the air to spell eternity, which was the word he was trying to spell. How is he going to figure that out? I'm not really sure. Ask Hans. It's a difficult-ass uh, word. It's Hans is wildin', honestly. The friends they made along the way helped them get back home, and when they get home, everything looks the same, but different, because it is they who have changed and grown up not the land it's no longer winter it's summertime and at the end the grandmother reads this passage from the bible it's matthew eighteen three. assuredly i say to you unless you are converted and become as little children you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven hmm. hans christian anderson often lets his big villains go unpunished and punish his protagonists first sometimes severely, like in the Snow Queen, before they're triumphant. So 
While Lyra doesn't get to save Tony or even Roger, Coleman does the opposite of that, right? She gets to do what Gerda does not. She has all of these characters support her and help her get to the end of her journey, good or bad. And these characters end the big bad because of her. Yeah, I think that... I think this like whole Snow Queen catch is really, really right and on the nose, considering how Pullman has written different Snow Queen, but likely the same inspiration, right? In 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 the the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and yes. how Pullman reacts against the way that C.S. Lewis wrote his stories. So. Yeah, it's very much so the anti-C.S. Lewis. Yeah, but I think all of these parallels, as you started reading aloud all the things that Gerda does, like you can really just see the similarities in the way that the the beats in their journey. Yeah, the journey to find the friend that's not even a friend anymore. Yeah, though I still think that, like, who is going to guess the word eternity from random, like, who knows how big these ice shards were? I'm... Uh, actually, they were shattered into tiny pieces. Some as small yeah. of grains of sand. I'm mad on behalf of Kai. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, is he actually turns into a dick, like, because of the shards. Like, I left that out, but he's totally mean to her. Uh, and just, like, before he goes off to the Ice Queen, and he thinks the Ice Queen is going to solve his problems. And she's like, no. Only you can solve your problems. <laughs> no. Yeah. Oh. But, yeah, I mean, even the Snow Queen and the way that Coulter's portrayed so terrifyingly. <laughs> so great. <sighs> anyway, that's all we have for chapters 13 through 15 right now. There are a lot of other things that, you know, we're inspired to talk about, but we got to leave content for some of the other episodes, you know? Yeah, we only have like three episodes left. There are other books too. <laughs> oh no. Oh, like the Gossip Girl series. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I wouldn't I'm really not against it me either but you know you love us XOXO Girls gossip. Gone Canon Girl wait no Gossip Girl Gone Canon fuck we'll work on it it's workshopable Gossip Girls Gone Canon yeah it is the best Gossip Girls Gone Canon XOXO alright well until then everyone thanks for listening we as we said have a Patreon episode coming out soon for all $5 and up patrons talking about some of the production information from the new His Dark Materials series, some production information from The Golden Compass, and my reactions to watching The Golden Compass movie the first time. Like I said, I it seemed like it was going to be a hot mess as someone who had read the books and loved them growing up, and I was like, I don't... You know, if you hadn't read the books, I would say you won't even feel bad about it, but... You have. But I had. I had tasted from the fruit of knowledge, and I knew. Yeah. I was going to be disappointed. So I just saved myself that pain, as I did with Ellen Chanted and with Avatar The Last Airbender. Yep. And here we are now. <laughs> uh, also, of course, in our next His Dark Materials episode, we have a special guest. Yes, Tana Ford will be joining us. Look forward to that. Tana from Westeros, whenever we... And of course, from... They're amazing art skills. We will definitely leave some links for that around the internet this week. You can check that out for sure. And be sure that you're subscribed to us on podcast platforms. Uh, we are on Podbean, on iTunes, on Spotify, on Google Play, on Stitcher, on Acast, on Overcast. You name it. Check it out. Subscribe. You'll get all the updates of when we release episodes. 
And of course, be sure to follow us on social media. We are Girls Gone Canon on Twitter. And, you know, maybe you liked this episode. Maybe you didn't. Shoot us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I've been another one of your hosts, Eliana. Thanks, guys.